A couple weeks ago, we were in Acts 8. You're still in Acts 8. But what we saw a couple weeks ago is that God used Philip to bring the gospel to Samaria. For centuries, we talked about Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the people in those kingdoms had animosity towards one another. But Jesus, we said, was the Davidic king the prophet spoke about that united the northern and southern kingdoms, ending the hostility and making them a family. Now Luke continues on with Philip in our text with a story that begins by God sending Philip to a distant location in verses 26 to 29. So after preaching in Samaria, God, wants to, God sends an angel, a messenger, and that tells Philip in verse 26 to rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So people, they were used to traveling by animals or, or walking a lot, uh, but this was still a pretty long distance. If, if you look at a map, Samaria to Jerusalem is about 40 miles. And if we went all the way to Gaza, which he didn't need to, that would have added on another 50 miles. So in total, God, through the angel, is potentially sending Philip about 90 miles away. Now, why does God send Philip there? What is so important that Philip needs to drop everything and leave? To put it simply, God wants him to meet a man. Luke describes the man that Philip meets, he was going to meet, as an Ethiopian eunuch. And Luke gives us a, a lot of details about him. We know that the Ethiopian eunuch had an important responsibility. Verse 27, he's described as the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and that he was in charge of all of her treasure. So this eunuch was a, an Ethiopian official. He was a treasurer for the queen. The word Candace wasn't the name of the queen, but it was the title given to the queens of Ethiopia, similar to like Caesar was the title for, uh, for the emperors. And as one commentator pointed out, the chariot that he rode in in verse 28 and 29 would have been a luxurious chariot, similar to riding in a private jet today. So the Ethiopian was, was important where he came from and he had responsibility. The second thing we see, though, is that the Ethiopian official was a worshiper of Yahweh. The end of verse 27 states that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. If you read books or uh, commentaries on this, it'll often mention something called, well, not even on this, uh, just in general, uh, you read biblical commentaries, it's going to talk about the Jewish uh, diaspora. And it refers to Jews being scattered to the surrounding nations through, through exile and wars. This man from Ethiopia could have been a Jew that was simply forced to leave Israel. But he could have also been a Gentile as well. And there are two different types of Gentiles that worshipped Yahweh, and you can, you'll find these in Scripture. Sometimes you'll see the word God-fearer. Now, what was a God-fearer? The God-fearer was a Gentile that accepted that Israel's God was the true and, and greatest God, the only God, but they didn't submit to the law, to circumcision, or to food laws. The other type of Gentile that worshipped Yahweh was called a proselyte. 
Now, a proselyte pretty much became as Jewish as possible. They submitted to the laws and food laws. Uh, They were circumcised. But they still weren't allowed inside the inner courts of the temple, something only Jews could do. But unlike the God-fearer, the proselyte was all in. We can't really narrow it down if uh, this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, was a Jew or if he was simply a a God-fearing Gentile or a proselyte. I tend to think he was a a, a proselyte. But Luke doesn't uh, give him a lot of clues either way. The reason I think that is because he travels a long distance to worship in Jerusalem. Seems more committed than many of the God-fearers. And... uh, And mentioning him as an Ethiopian rather than giving some sort of clue that he was a Jew also leads me to believe he was more of a Gentile. When it comes to this man's identity, though, more so than his job, more so than his nationality, Luke wants us to know that he is a eunuch. Why do I say that? For the rest of the narrative, every other descriptor for this man is dropped, and he's simply described as the eunuch. Look at some of the verses with me. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip. Verse 36. And the eunuch said. Verse 38. Down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. Verse 39. And the eunuch saw him no more. So he's not referred to as an Ethiopian anymore. He's not referred to as as an official anymore. He's just simply referred to as the eunuch. So, more than anything else, Luke wants us to know that Philip is about to encounter a eunuch. Why, though? Why is that important? Why is that he is a eunuch important? Because it meant that though he may have been important in Ethiopia, to the Jews, he was an outcast, like a leper. Listen to what the law in Deuteronomy 23 says about eunuchs. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. It's unclear as to why the eunuch had, or exactly how the eunuch had worshipped in Jerusalem, because according to the law, eunuchs weren't allowed to be in the temple. The law's exclusion from allowing eunuchs to be in the temple, it wasn't a moral issue or because they were somehow inferior, but it had to do with purity. The law had many rules concerning purity. If you wanted to bring a sacrifice, how was that sacrifice supposed to be? Without blemish. Lepers and the uncircumcised were considered unclean. And these kinds of laws, they taught the Jewish people discipline. Paul referred to the law as a schoolmaster. And he compares the Israelites to little children and argues that the law helped them to grow up into maturity. The discipline of all the laws helped them to be different than all the other surrounding nations. I know that many of us have kids. You probably have certain rules in your house, no TV after this time, go to bed at this time, that other parents don't have for their kids. What are you doing? You're teaching them discipline. You're teaching them restraint. Or how about when you go on a diet? Even though it's not sinful to eat certain foods, 
you are disciplining yourself by refraining from eating certain things. And the purity laws were to teach the Israelites discipline by saying that some things are clean and okay and some things aren't. Unfortunately for eunuchs, that meant that God used them to corporately help Israel mature. The problem, though, is that the Jews, much like many other things, took it too far. Yes, God wanted the people to be disciplined and learn discipline, but he never intended for the eunuchs and for others to be treated as outcasts or to be considered second class. That's exactly what they did. Now, we don't know how the eunuch in our text became a eunuch. Some nations, they would, they would castrate uh, you for punishment, and there were many different other reasons why you could become one. But because people, during the Roman reign, they bathed publicly, word would have gotten around very quickly that he was a eunuch and would have felt like an outcast around the Jews. Bathing publicly, by the way, if you ever read all this stuff about circumcision, you're like, how do they even know that he's circumcised or not? Like, it's because they would bathe publicly during these times. And so Philip, he obeyed the messenger of God, and he traveled southwest of Jerusalem, and he finally comes across the eunuch described in our text. And when Philip sees the eunuch traveling by in his chariot, the Holy Spirit tells Philip to jump in and join him. He says, go over and join his chariot. How often do we, when we're at the store or coffee shop or wherever, do we feel the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go speak to somebody? How often do we do it? Well, Philip listened. And there's something else we can see in this text about God's pursuit of people. Jesus often pursued people. In the story of the the woman at the well in Samaria, the text says that Jesus, when leaving Judah to go to Galilee, it says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, he didn't physically have to pass through Samaria. There were a lot of different roads and routes he could have taken. The reason that he had to go through Samaria is because he was pursuing someone. Jesus also told the parable about how he pursues someone, comparing it, describing it as a woman turning her house upside down looking for a coin. Or about how a shepherd will leave his 99 sheep and go check the hills and the valleys and highs and lows until he finds his one lost sheep. And now God, Jesus, has sent Philip almost 90 miles away to pursue someone else. He somehow manages to get in the chariot, and then he notices that the eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah, specifically from chapter 53. And let's look at verses 32 and 33. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth... In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, why do you think Isaiah was such an important Old Testament prophet? 
not only to the eunuch, but to the Old Testament Jews in general and the New Testament Jews. I think I'm going to quickly summarize Isaiah for us, and I think it'll help us understand this text in the New Testament in general better. The main reason the prophet Isaiah is so important is because the last half of Isaiah, specifically 40, uh, 40 to 55, and 40 to 65 is where it ends, but 66, those, those chapters are the gospel. And if you guys are interested, on Wednesday nights for our prayer meeting, we were going through the book of Isaiah, specifically the last half. Now remember our discussion about the, the two kingdoms a couple weeks ago. The northern kingdom, because of sin, this is in Isaiah, the context, went into exile into Assyria. And Isaiah is writing to tell the southern kingdom, Judah, that the covenant curses have fallen upon them as well. They have failed to do justice. Their leaders are corrupt, Isaiah says. And so just as the northern kingdom went into Assyria, Babylon, Isaiah says, is going to come and take you away. God is going to leave Israel, and the Babylonians, sure enough, they did destroy the temple when they captured the southern kingdom. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah paints a pretty bleak picture for Israel. But beginning in chapter 40, God, through Isaiah, just starts to almost just drown the Israelites with promise after promise after promise. He promises return from exile in chapter 52. Loose the bonds from your necks, O Zion, O captives of Zion, just as I did in Egypt so long ago. I'm about to roll up my sleeves, bear my holy arm, and do another mighty work. He promises salvation to the world in chapter 49. It's too light a thing for you to just save Israel and bring her back. You will be a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. He promises the launching of new creation in Isaiah 65. I create a new heavens and a new earth. But one promise that would have been particularly important to a eunuch was the text that uh, Evan read earlier, Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5. To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, can you imagine for years being a social outcast and hearing people say things, don't go near that man, or don't invite that man to my house, and then coming to Isaiah 56 and reading, I will give the eunuch an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And eunuchs weren't allowed in the temple, but Isaiah says that they will be in God's house and within his walls. Now, even if the eunuch didn't even understand how that would come true in his time, it would have meant at least that to him, God doesn't think about him the way that everybody else does. He's not a castaway. But how would all of these great promises in Isaiah come about? How are they going to come true? The wonderful thing about Isaiah is no matter 
which strand you pull on in Isaiah, the new creation, the salvation of the Gentiles, return from exile, they all lead to and are centered on this coming servant king from the root of Jesse that we find in chapter 53. The servant king will lead the Jews out of exile. The servant king will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The servant king will bring the new creation. The servant king will bring redemption for a eunuch. The servant king will be made low. He's going to be despised, rejected. He'll be an outcast himself. And Isaiah 53 says that he's going to suffer a mysterious blow. And through this, salvation is going to come and forgiveness is going to come, not only to Israel, but to the ends of the earth. So it should be no wonder that in our text, we find the eunuch reading Isaiah and about this servant king. And the part of Isaiah that the eunuch is reading highlights this servant king's humility and the injustice taking place against him. And except for being able to identify with the servant as an outcast, there's no obvious answer as to why out of all of Isaiah 53 that in other places about the servant king, why this portion of Isaiah 53 is what was focused on. The big question, though, about the servant king was, who is he? Who is he? Who is this person Isaiah is talking about? And that's precisely the question that Philip asked the eunuch in verse 34. Look at verse 34. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now imagine for years and years reading and reading about this, this person in Isaiah who would do all these wonderful things but never knowing who he is. And that's exactly where the eunuch is at right now. But then there's Philip sitting across from you. And for him, there's only one answer to the identity of who the servant king is. It's Jesus. Many scholars and commentators, they spent a lot of time arguing about whether Philip actually shared the gospel with the eunuch because they're saying in the text that's, that's there, there's not a clear gospel presentation uh, that they were looking at with Isaiah. But if you look closely, I, I think he did preach the gospel. If you look closely at our text, looking at verse, uh, the last verse quoted from Isaiah, it reads, uh, for his life was taken from the earth. This is ambiguous, and, and it certainly would have left room for Philip to discuss Jesus' death and resurrection. But notice even more evidence that he did share the gospel is that he didn't just stay in this portion of scripture. Verse 35 says, beginning with this scripture, meaning they moved on from there at some point. And also, the end of verse 35 says explicitly that he shared the good news about Jesus. And that good news would have included the content that Luke's been putting in in chapter 2 and in other places uh, about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins, and about repentance. That would have also included the, the commandment to be baptized. 
Because after hearing the gospel, the eunuch immediately wants to be baptized. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And that's what Philip does. He takes him uh, to be baptized in verse 38. Notice in the text the, ner- the urgency of baptism. It's funny that in the early church, there became a tradition to where if somebody would uh, profess faith, they would actually wait an entire year to see if their faith was genuine before they'd baptize them. And there is some, some wisdom in that. We should seek out and, and look uh, for evidences of faith in people before we baptize them. But Philip didn't wait an entire year to baptize him. He did it upon the profession of faith and, and his desire to be baptized. And I want you guys to know, because of the urgency of baptism, that if you haven't been baptized, but you need to be baptized, I don't care about what's going on right now with COVID-19, I will baptize you. And so after the baptism, the Spirit leads Philip away north, and the eunuch rejoices. Verse 39 says he went on his way rejoicing. what it would be like to be a new believer again and have that that great joy at the first profession of faith. This story with the eunuch, it gives us a couple of takeaways. Because we can see that God cares for the outcast, we should care for them as well. Because we can see that God cares for the outcast, we should care for them as well. Because of movements like uh, LGBT and, and others and transgenders and homosexuals, cross-dressers, these kinds of people who used to be afraid to identify themselves as such in public are now being less hesitant to come out. And you can see them at coffee shops, you can see them at grocery stores, or even in your neighborhood. And even though more and more people are coming out like this and are even being celebrated when they come out in some cases many of them still feel like they're outcasts in society. And for many Christians, we know that the Bible is very clear that they are living a sinful lifestyle. They are failing to reflect the image of God. But many of us, we take it too far. Many Christians treat people as the Jews would treat a eunuch. We treat them as if we're disgusted by them and as if they're outcasts not to be touched or or talked to. You guys, stay, you guys stay in your space, I'll stay in mine. That's what we think. Many of us see transgender, homosexuals, and others, and we have this, this sort of anger towards them. And some of you probably think that if Jesus walked the earth right now, he'd have this sort of callous attitude towards, attitude towards them, like Ben Shapiro or, or some other conservatives we see. But what we see in Scripture is that Jesus pursued the outcasts. One time, Jesus was invited over to a Pharisee's house. And at some point while he was there, there was a woman who many, and I I agree with this, they speculate that she was a prostitute. She comes in, bows down, and she wipes Jesus' feet with perfume, tears, and her own hair. Now, 
the Pharisees, they sort of gather together and they start talking amongst themselves and they said, if this man's truly a prophet, he would know the kind of woman that's touching him and he wouldn't let him touch her. He wouldn't let her touch him. What does Jesus do? He overhears the conversation and he doesn't respond by saying, oh, I didn't know that she was this kind of woman. I didn't know she was a prostitute and tell her to get away. He forgave her. And he explained to them that the reason she was showing so much love was because she was forgiven so much. The Gospels also tell us that Jesus regularly ate, had fellowship with the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the misfits. The people that everybody else wanted nothing to do with. Jesus ate with the outcasts. Now, if having a meal and creating bridges to share the gospel with a homosexual or transgender or some other outcast in society, if that seems radical to you, then you are being shaped more by society than you are by scripture. Yes, it is sin, and it should be pointed out as such, but so is drunkenness and drug addiction and affairs. And I'm sure many of us have no problem befriending people that do those things. God doesn't withhold love or the gospel from the outcast, and neither should we. If you're here today and you're not sure about whether you should believe in Jesus or not, I pray that you'll consider it this morning. You, like me, you are a sinner, and you are heading for destruction. And if you were to die today, sadly, you would go to hell. But Jesus, this servant king that we've been talking about this morning, he went to the cross. And on the cross, he stood in the place of sinners, taking their punishment on, his, taking their punishment on himself. God's plan of salvation includes forgiveness and that doesn't compromise his justice, his holiness, because Jesus paid the punishment. And because he has punished his son instead of sinners, he offers forgiveness to you. And what you have to do, the biblical pattern, is that you have to repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. And you can go home rejoicing like the eunuch. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your kindness and your love. And we just pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to, to the people who we often neglect and turn our nose up at and, and help us realize that you don't look at it that way that you don't see them that way, and that we would follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit to, to join their chariot, to, to join their table, to, to ask them out to lunch and share the good news of Jesus with them. Build friendships, build relationships. Invite them into our homes.
We pray this, Father, and we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.